Hello and welcome to Keanu Club, like a cool breeze over the mountains. This is episode 27, my own private Idaho from 1991. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And we have returning to us a guest that I feel like hasn't been around for a while. Tobin Addington's back. Hello, Tobin. Hey, guys. Good to be here. What was the last episode you were on? Les liaisons dangereux. Oh, right, yes. right, 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 right. Yes, it, it was beyond his control. <laughs> yes, it was beyond my control. Yes, exactly. So that movie, and then this movie, and then the next one that you're doing, which is just in a couple episodes, that all sort of share a common theme, which is sort of, you know, <laughs> Shakespearean or semi-Shakespearean, or you have a very specific niche that you have chosen for your Keanu Club films. It's so funny as you start to do this, like the parallels and the connections that you begin to draw. It's it's true. It's true. There is a there's something of a through line here. Totally. Oh yeah, I didn't even think of it until just now that Tobin was connected by they're all sort of these play esque films, and they're also connected by another thing that, as I just tweeted out, is that the movies that you've picked, at least the last one and this one, they're both ones that you sort of. I think more so than any other Keanu Club movie so far, get more rewarded upon future viewings. That we talked about Dangerous Liaisons as this like complicated thing, and this one, you're sort of just like dropped into a world, and everything just exists already, and you sort of have to like almost catch up a little bit. So this is a movie I feel would benefit greatly from rewatching multiple times. That's true. All three of these movies, this and Dangerous Liaisons and, and Much Ado, all do drop you into not just different worlds, but in the case of this movie and, well, I guess all three sort of different language systems, you know, different ways of using dialogue and, as well as manners and different codes of conduct. And it's true. It's a neat thing to sort of discover that way. Yeah. And I just saw this movie for the first time last year just because I had bought the Criterion version years and years ago and you know never really got around to it, always wanted to see it. And the first time I watched it, it was just kind of just wanted to let it wash over me. Watching it this time, I had a lot of fun actually kind of studying the film and following it again and rediscovering it. This movie, which I'm not sure if we've run into it a lot with Keanu Club. We definitely ran into it with Cage Club, and I feel like now that I'm saying it, I'm going to second-guess myself. I don't know what you just said made me think about this, but apparently when this was first released, it was sort of packaged under a different kind of guise. This is a very... It's a gay movie, and when it first was released, they had both River Phoenix and Keanu sort of arm-in-arm arm with women, and I think it's just strange that, you know, you sort of have this one on yourself, and I still have no idea where I got this from based on what you just said, but it's sort of interesting to see the way that things are packaged differently. You know what I mean? Well, we've seen a lot of sort of false advertising through Keanu Club DVD covers, right? <laughs> right. With. I mean, look at Brotherhood of Justice and look no further, because yes. Kiefer's front and center, but he's nowhere to really be found in that movie. Marketing is just a strange thing, and at the time, especially in the state of queer cinema, I don't think it was widely accepted. This is still kind of a taboo subject for 1991, believe it or not, in America. And the Criterion... A collection has done a great job of packaging and distributing uh, not only this movie, but lots of movies that deserve widespread release or just, you know, just deserve more attention. It's kind of an amazing get for them to get these two actors in this movie. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the way Brokeback was able to get made with Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal in that these were two up-and-coming, rising 
hot stars. And I don't mean necessarily just physically attractive, but like, you know, they had buzz. You know, these were, this is on an upswing in their careers. You know, the trajectory is headed skyward. And for them to take what at the time would be, you know, so it was risky material, right? As you say, the, the mainstreaming of what became known as, you know, the queer cinema of the 90s and the independent film, they had not sort of broken through in any kind of way, right? So it had to have been in, in some ways, you know, you don't want to give actors a ton of credit for, you know, necessarily for taking on a gay role. Given the imagery this movie starts with, with River Phoenix getting a blowjob from a guy, that's a powerful statement for a, a young actor on the rise to, to make with a, a material like this. I was reading a little bit about them casting this movie, and Gus Van Sant, this is apparently a movie that he was originally writing this in the 70s and then read a book about street hustlers, and he said that it was so much better than what he was writing that he just put it down for a while, and then he eventually came back to it later and it sort of became like a, a combination of three different scripts, but when he was actually finally ready to start casting the film... I think he just had the idea for Keanu and River Phoenix to be in these roles, and he sent the script to both of their agents, expecting the agents to say, this is not something that we want our clients to be involved with. But apparently Keanu's agent was okay with it, and he passed it along to Keanu, and he said yes. But River Phoenix's agent wanted no part of this, wanted him to have nothing to do with this movie. Then I guess Keanu called River Phoenix. They had met each other on I Love You to Death. And apparently over Christmas break one year, you know, around Christmas time, Keanu rode his motorcycle from Canada down to Gainesville, Florida to hand <laughs> deliver the script to River wow. Phoenix. Wow. And so he was cast in the film based on his bond with Keanu and sort of the, you know, I think it was sort of like what we saw in another movie recently that we were talking about, I think, that they both did it because the other one was going to do it. Like, I'm in if he's in. And the only other thing I have to say in terms of this, and it's just something that a guy Mike just mentioned, is apparently Gus Van Sant offered the lead role to Kiefer Sutherland, I guess the River Phoenix role, and Kiefer turned it down because he wanted to go skiing instead, and he said that he really regrets doing that. Yeah, too bad, because I feel like this like this did not hurt his career one iota, you know? And Keanu went on to be fine, too. A few years later, he'd be on a speeding bus with Sandra Bullock. So this was a good step for them. And what's great about that story between the two of them sort of deciding to do the script together is you feel the trust between the two actors in this film. Like, it's a tough film, and you almost... To have friends play these lead roles is a benefit, I feel. Like, you just have this built-in natural chemistry between them, and you really feel it in this movie. I felt it. Yeah, the affection and the how comfortable they are with one another, that, that comes through scene after scene here. And the main story of legend, the main scene of lore for this film, is the campfire scene, where River Phoenix basically admits to Keanu that he's in love with him, and Keanu's like, I, never, I don't love guys unless they're paying me. And apparently, from what I've read in multiple places online, that River Phoenix wrote that scene himself. He went up to Gus Van Sant and said, I rewrote this, I hope this is okay. And he's like, I already talked to Keanu, and Keanu said it was fine. So like, he had like this, you know, this trust and this faith and this connection in, in his co-star to sort of you know, completely rewrite what's maybe the most pivotal, most memorable scene. And you know, their comfort level with each other it pays off. Yeah, that's the scene that gets so much attention for this movie, and, and deservedly so. It's kind of the heart of this movie in a way, in terms of these characters interacting with one another in a very vulnerable and direct way without a lot of quote-unquote performance between them in terms of the characters. And I, and I think that 
It's totally deserved. On the Criterion disc, there's a conversation that Todd Haynes has with Gus Van Sant where they talk about various points in the movie. And, and he tells that story of River Phoenix having written that scene. And it's hard to imagine this movie without that scene, right? I mean, yeah. it casts their whole relationship, uh, especially from River Phoenix's point of view, in a whole new light and is sort of the tragedy of the movie in a way. What do I mean to you? What do you mean to me? Mike, you're my best friend. I know, man. I know, I'm not, I know I'm your friend. We're good friends, and it's good to be, you know, good friends. That's a good thing. So? So I just... I only have sex with a guy for money. Yeah, I know. And two guys can't love each other. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, for me, I could love someone even if I, you know, wasn't paid for it. I love you, and you don't pay me. Yeah, I really think River Phoenix is just, like, amazing in this movie all around. I just think he has a great sense of this character, and, I mean, I don't feel like he's a character. He feels very real to me, and and I even feel at times that we're going to see non-actors, real street hustlers in this movie. That's how it seems, anyway. Like, there's sort of a blend here that maybe Gus Van Sand actually found some non-actors to populate his movie. I mean, we're going to get Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers at some point, too. We just had Anthony Kiedis and Point yeah. Break. <laughs> but I think that's what helps pay off that scene so well, is it seems that River had just such a good understanding of that character. He was able to elevate it, even to, to a degree that the creator couldn't see. It, it just adds another level to this movie, I feel. It makes it feel much more of like a combined effort. I didn't think of this while I was watching the movie, but hearing you guys talk about it now, Mike, this reminds me so much of a good version of Never on Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> because Never on Tuesday, arguably my favorite Cage Club film because it's the best Cage role he's ever had as man in red sports car. I mean, that movie, like, it almost feels like, in a way, that was like a terrible low-budget remake of this, but that came out before this. But, like, the most memorable, like, sort of the best scene aside from Cage is around a campfire in that, and there's all these metaphors about the highway, and it's just like this weird comparison. But you think about how sort of terrible that movie is, and then here, I guess it's just sort of like thinking about how different movies can do the same scene in different ways, and just that scene is just that moment or the different dates he goes on. They're just like these little bite-sized moments that just... They all just work, and like even outside the film, like if you just watch that scene as a scene, even like as a short film, like when they're in that hotel room and it's Keanu and River Phoenix and Udo Kier kind of recreating Blue Velvet a little bit, like that's like a great little sort of short film in and of itself. Like even outside the film, just have like this heightened weirdness. Yeah, or like when they go to Rome, right? Like to yeah. search for River's <laughs> yeah. mom. Or when we meet his brother and we go to the trailer and we learn about how their mom was insane. I mean, in a way, it kind of reminded me of Bringing Out the Dead where we just have these vignettes that are tied together through not even a plot, but just through the character of the hustler, you know, just how he drifts, the drifter. 
and it works a lot better in this film than in other movies. A lot of stuff works better in this because it's a strange and foreign world for most viewers, like especially, you know, straight guys like us, I feel, you know, this could be a little uncomfortable, but because Van Sant puts a bit of the Shakespearean twist on it and codes it a bit, it's kind of more fun to watch. It doesn't feel as dire or as serious as as it actually is, you know, it kind of sugarcoats it a little bit, even though it's still very dark at times. And this may be a place now for me to make a big confession here, which is that um, this is the first time I've ever seen my own private Idaho. Um, me too. It's okay. Well, no, but we're, we're in the, we're in this together. <laughs> no, well, let me explain why. Because I got to film school in 2001, which is 10 years after this movie came out. And this was a big touchstone for a lot of people who I was at film school with. And so I pretended to have seen it all oh. through those years. I mean, not in a big way. People would say, oh, like in, you know, like that scene in My Own Private Idaho where XYZ happens. And I'm like, oh, yeah, right, right, right. I just didn't, <laughs> I didn't let anyone know because I, I couldn't. I mean, it was like pivotal for a lot of these people. I sort of came into Gus Van Sant with To Die For a couple of movies later. And that's really where I began to know who he was, but I just never, I, for for whatever reason, never sort of got back around uh, to watching My Own Private Idaho for the first time. So I was coming at it as a pretty blank slate. At my first note here is River Phoenix really is that magnetic on screen because he is, he is just, you cannot take your eyes off of him, whatever right. he's doing. And then the second note is some movies can only get made at a certain time and a certain place. And I feel like this is a quintessential movie of this time and place in terms of the way it's made, in terms of the kinds of worlds that it's exploring, in terms of the kind of distribution it was able to get. A very particular moment allowed this movie to happen in the early jumpstart of the American independent cinema of the of the early 90s. There's kind of a time capsule quality to it. And I was not prepared. I thought one of them committed suicide in it. I didn't know there was any Shakespeare connection until Bob shows up. Like, I was totally surprised by big, big chunks of this movie, um, <laughs> uh, which, which I'm excited to sort of explore as, as we go. But I do, I do have to confess that I have never seen this before, and I'm sorry to all of you that I let on <laughs> about that. I, I apologize. I think that's so funny because it's, like, it's not like you couldn't have just rented it from somewhere and just like go hid in a room for like two hours and then come back and like not even mention it. You just you lived this lie and you were, you were almost more committed to the lie than like anything else. I, and and it, was, it wasn't that I wasn't watching movies. I mean, we were watching – I was watching the at movies at the kind of rate that you guys do now when I was in film school. I mean, one or two a day for years. And so it's not like I, I didn't have a diet and I could have thrown this in there. But for whatever reason, as I say, I, I told myself – because I, I ordered the Criterion Edition as soon as it came out. And, and I thought, okay, I owe it to myself and all these people to at least have this on my <laughs> shelf so that I will watch it and I can pretend that I was just waiting for this to come out. So in terms of the pivotal nature, like I don't think I've known anybody who's ever talked about this movie. It's obviously important for a lot of reasons. It also reminds me, like, I wonder, I'm sure in some facet of his brain, Quentin Tarantino even was influenced by this because this movie starts with the dictionary definition of narcolepsy. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe the most famous movie to ever start with the definition is Pulp Fiction. And I don't know if I've ever seen that anywhere else. Like, just that comparison alone. Apparently, this is James Franco's favorite movie, I think. James Franco, hmm. a big touchstone in the Cage Club Podcast Network family. <laughs> Sunny. Like, this movie is very important to a lot of people, but it also sort of feels like that kind of movie. It just seems like sort of like what Tobin's saying. Like, a lot of people would say that they've seen it, but I feel like this is a movie that, like, not many people have seen. 
You know what I think may have helped with some of its mainstream? I mean, there's sort of this subversive pop culture, like, slant to the film in a lot of ways. For instance, the scene where the magazine covers start talking yes. and coming to life, that kind of stuff. And I also feel like Gus Van Sant, I don't know, to a lot of ways, I feel like there's references to his favorite filmmakers in ways that Tarantino would come to reference his favorite mm-hmm. filmmakers. Like, for some reason, I, I get a lot of Stanley Kubrick in this film. The opening and closing titles are very much like Clockwork orange with the um, colors this sort of band of hustlers reminded me almost of like a gang of droogs in a way and also in the manner that they talked in that sort of Shakespearean slang and stuff so I I, I could see the reasons behind this sort of elevating more into the public than maybe some of the other films about this subject matter didn't they maybe just didn't seem more accessible than this but I feel like Van Sant is a great director and that's what he does he makes it kind of accessible I read one thing I was when you were talking about Kubrick I remember reading something on IMDb and Gus Van Sant did say that he was influenced by Kubrick while making the movie but not in terms of shooting the movie he said that when he was writing the script, he would just write it in very different, like different formats. Like apparently, he rewrote one version of this as a, as a stage play, just because he was tired of rewriting it as a movie every time. And so apparently, that was something that maybe Kubrick did or tried to do or sort of messed around with. But he said that you know studios had such a hard time if it wasn't like in courier font, like size twelve on a white piece of paper, they had no idea how it would become a movie. But like he would just sort of draw inspiration, I guess, how Kubrick, like what he did before he made a movie. I mean, in terms of like the the film language, you guys are both way more versed in terms of that than I am, and I will definitely sort of defer to you in terms of what it looks like in, in that regard, but it's just sort of interesting that even in a way that's sort of not visual on screen, it's just sort of the pre-production, he also is inspired in the same way by the same guy. In this same conversation that's on the Criterion disc between um, Van Sant and Todd Haynes, they show screenshots of the script and it's completely bonkers. It's it totally different fonts. <laughs> I mean, it goes from comic sans to bookman Antica to whatever, you know, it's like all these crazy fonts. And he, he also cops to, and this gets to actually one of my criticisms of the movie. And now I'm really going to make all my old film school friends upset. <laughs> and now I'm, now I'm going to criticize this movie that they, that they adore. This, this script started as three different scripts. And he, right. he talks about that very explicitly and how he was looking for a way to sort of combine them all together. Again, I've only seen it once, but there are strands of this movie that played better for me. And, and picking them out, I think, it's, I think it's one of those or two of those three scripts that played better for me. And I think that the, some of the charm of this movie is its disjointed, freewheeling, eventually road movie kind of thing. But I'm, I'm not sure that for me it entirely works as a whole. The other thing I wanted to say just to go back to something that Mike was saying, we can't discount that one of the reasons this movie had such uh, cultural penetration, no pun intended, is that it was starring these two very mainstream uh, hunky young actors. That if, you know, when he was originally going to make this movie, if he couldn't get stars, he was going to make it with the two street kids who feature most prominently in it, the real life street kids, the one with blonde hair and one with dark hair. They were going to play the two characters. And I think if he'd made that movie, it still would have been a, a seminal 90s queer cinema film. But I, I can't imagine that it would have had the cultural impact that it had starring Keanu and River. Yeah, because, I mean, you have Ted, you know, Agent Utah, if you will, and (laughs) Indiana Jones. River Phoenix was like a child star, too, you know, and 
yeah, I don't think about it as much now because of its popularity. But yeah, you know, Joey and I talk all the time about how Keanu has been one of the most typecast actors that we've seen in recent history, probably because he can do Ted. Let's have him be Ted for five films. You know, he could be right, Agent right, Utah. Right. He'll be Agent Utah in Speed again, coming soon. And so for him to be <laughs> in this movie, it gives him a really good chance to break out of that mold. Right, and, you know, right. I think he's got a lot of confidence in this role. Yes. I don't feel like he's struggling at all. I feel like he's really here to really give it his all and that he does. Well, what's kind of weird in a way in this movie is that sometimes, like, the way he says lines, it's like he's channeling Shakespeare and Ted sort of at the same time, like, because he still speaks in that sort of surfery accent at times. He's also reciting Shakespeare or things that sound like Shakespeare. Like there's apparently, you know, one of those three scripts I think Tobin talked about was like a straight adaptation of, you know, one of the Henry the Fourth plays or Henry the Fifth. But it's just like, I don't think that's ever going to leave him. Like Ted is always sort of going to be with him. I'm just glad to see him in a different role. Although it is weird to see 26, 27 year old Keanu basically playing a 20 year old in this movie. Like I know that's not sort of too far off, but you know, as you just said, I'm, I'm so tired of him being stuck in high school and here we are you know him sort of breaking into the real world as an fbi agent he's sort of becoming an adult before our eyes and then just because the character requires it's like all right just lose seven years like time to go back to your formative years it's like no we were so close that has to be a symptom of the way you guys are watching these movies because i having not literally been watching them all in order i didn't that didn't sort of confound me at all and i think since we knew them both as such young actors I buy them. I think people buy them in these eight, or at the time, bought them in in their you know in these ages pretty well. It never really bothered me or occurred to me even about their age. At one point, he says, you know, when I turn twenty one, I'll get my inheritance, and I was like, oh, okay. I didn't even it didn't. I wasn't even. I didn't know we were following numbers in this movie. I didn't realize that it, it didn't bother me whatsoever. And River Phoenix, like I I don't know how old he was in this, but I totally buy him to play that age. It's just funny to see Keanu and Flea because he just was in Point Break with Anthony Kiedis. Like, I yep. can't get over that for some reason. It's like... No, because like the Chili, the chili Peppers are not known for being actors. Like, it's not like there's something... And then, you know, two of the last, what, three movies we've done, they've just been, like, the, the most recognizable members of the Chili Peppers. Like, I think this one, like, Flea is better in this role. Apparently, Flea loves this movie. But he also says that, like, maybe it's because he's in it. Like, he's not sure, you know, it's, but whatever. But, like... I feel like the Anthony Kiedis role literally could have been anybody. Here, Flea, like, seems to work better. It's not like a part written for them, but they're just in it. It's weird. It's a weird coincidence. So I don't I don't think you're wrong to, like, not be able to get over it, because it just, like, it, it almost doesn't make sense. These were shot, I think, around the same time. Like, I think this was supposed to come out a little bit earlier, but, like, he was shooting Point Break. So he basically went from a set with Anthony Kiedis to a set with Flea. Like, it's just, I, it just, it, it, it is weird. I mean, Flea does have a bit more acting credentials he he was in a film called suburbia and that was like about punk punk rockers homeless punk kids that's a pretty good one he he was in back to the future 2 the year before and back to the future 3 as well so he's in there but, but what's interesting about him and bob and the whole kind of group is i love the dynamic everybody is very much different you know like they're all individuals right like none of them seem to really cross over personality wise too much Keanu is sort of the prodigal son, I guess, like, in a way, you know, he considers Bob his surrogate father, and he taught him the ways of the streets and all that kind of stuff, but aside from that, I feel like everybody here is doing their own thing, like, everybody is, like, staking their part of the screen and really sticking to it. I like that about it, is that, like, the characters 
are all full characters in and of themselves. Yeah, and they really do command their own moments, all of them, and somehow still sort of work as a group. I found myself as the movie went on, I'm curious to hear if you guys felt this way at all, more and more drawn to Keanu's character. And I, and I, and I don't know, it may be because I was watching it for you know, for Keanu Club, I don't know. But part of it was, I think, once I realized that they were riffing on Henry the Fourth, parts one and two, and eventually a little bit of Henry the Fifth, which is a character that I love so much, and I know those plays so much better than I that you know knew this movie. You know, then I was anticipating where he was going to go a little bit, which is I think, which was a real smart thing I think for Gus Van Sant to do here to sort of in this world that's so different that's so outlandish that's so unusual for people to see on screen at the time or even now to give us a a classical cast to it and a sense of where Keanu's arc was going to go I think by design River Phoenix's character is more static I think that's just part of the character, right? He he doesn't go through necessarily a big change, even though it's his mom he goes running after, and you know, they, like he is in some ways the engine of the movie, and yet a very static character. And I think that I found myself more and more drawn to the how dynamic the arc and the conflicts, the inner conflicts that Keanu was experiencing. And I th- I really bought him in this. I thought he was I thought he was great. I thought he was free. Just the difference between the way he is in the first couple scenes that we see him in and then the way he is in the last couple scenes that we see him in, that all buttoned up and sort of taking on his father's role and his birthright and turning his back on, you know, the street culture and and if you know Henry V, both tragedy and triumph of those moments, like that I found that to be really compelling. What I think is weird is that obviously I was watching it for Keanu because that's why we're doing this, but I was also thinking about how Keanu's character changes more, but he's also like the more boring character because it's like everything he's doing just seems to be like killing time until his dad dies. That he doesn't have to be a street whore, that he's just doing it just sort of, I mean, he says, right, like he's doing this to piss off his parents so that when he eventually comes back and becomes a good boy again, that they'll be even more proud of him than if he was good all along. That it just seems like he's, you know, this entitled rich kid who knows he's going to have this huge trust fund delivered at his footsteps in a matter of years, you know, either when he turns 21 or when his dad dies or whatever. Meanwhile, you know, River Phoenix's character, Mike, like he never changes and he's sort of stuck and nothing really ever goes his way. But he's also, he's sort of more interesting because you feel that he sort of has to do this because he doesn't really have any other choice. That he, like, Everything that he experiences, and maybe it's the positions that he puts himself in, but he always seems to find himself in a hotel room with a guy who wants to do, like, depraved shit to him just because he needs, like, a few dollars to make it to the next day. You know, and he goes all over the world to find his mom, and he's always one step away, and, you know, at the very end of the movie, when he, you know, we sort of don't know the way that the film ends here, you know, not counting the, the deleted scene that Gus Van Sant took out at the very, very end, but we don't know what to make of him, but we know that probably, possibly, depending on, you know, how optimistic you are, you know, he's not dead at the end, but he might be getting carried off to some horrible fate, depending on, you know, how pessimistic you are about his life choices. It's interesting you say that. You sort of put your finger on it just though sort of the opposite way that I think of it, which is that I find the fact that Keanu chose this life to be more interesting. Like, yeah, exactly. He didn't have to do this. He could be doing any number of other things. And and he says, you know, he gives a couple of reasons why he might be doing it. And I don't know that I buy any of them. And again, I'm bringing all all of my, you know, history with the with the Henry character to it. 
as well, which may be unfair to the movie. But I find that he feels so conflicted with between both worlds and is caught between these two worlds and will never be able to reconcile them with one another. And yet he has to. They're two parts of his life, right? And he's and he'll never fully be in either world. And that to me, I just find that very compelling. I just think that it's like everything just comes so effortlessly to him. And I don't know if there's any depth to it, but he's just sort of tagging along with his friend who goes to Italy to find his mom. And just while he's in Italy, falls in love with this beautiful woman. Everything just is like handed to him on a silver platter. And I guess I agree that it could be more interesting because he chose this instead of having to do it. But it's also like, yeah, I'll just go along for the ride and like, oh, look, here's like another great thing to be dropped into my lap. Well, and I think that we're supposed to reflect that off of the River Phoenix character, who, as you say, you know, almost nothing goes goes right for in this movie. And like that's, I think that's part of the point. Given the River Phoenix is our point of view character, is that like nothing will ever go right for him. And this other guy, like, yeah, he's things are all we're always going to work out fine for Keanu, at least in retrospect. You know, looking at it from later on in the film. But the heartbreak for me. I felt I just I felt very deeply Keanu unable to return the love that River Phoenix offers to him in the campfire scene, and then from then on they just they're just drift apart, right? Like that's a part place where he sort of realizes that that's not like it's just just not going to be. I think that's one of the things that is a real strength of this movie that it allows all these different interpretations and yet hangs together as a movie. Because I think that you can sort of argue it a number of ways and you can read it a number of ways. And, and the movie is, is loose enough in its structure, it allows you to do that. That campfire scene is the moment where they're both definitely the most honest with themselves and probably with another person throughout the entire film. River Phoenix, Mike, the character, professes his love. Like, he even refers to sex as love and he's like, you know you don't charge for love and it's like it's not love it's sex like he almost can't differentiate which is sad for the character and with Keanu I was like well is he a tourist or is he sort of the realest one of the bunch because like you're right he chose this life he doesn't have to do this life and when he gives it up that to me is sort of a tragedy for his character when I turn 21 I don't want any more of this life my mother and father will be surprised at the incredible change. It will impress them more when such a fuck-up like me turns good than if I had been a good son all along. All my bad behavior I will throw away to pay a debt. I will change when everybody expects it the least. <laughs> You'll become a head roller. A hatchet man for your old man. No! You will be the hatchet man, Bob. That will be your job. And so there will rarely be a job hatcheted. It will all be just one endless party, won't it? Definitely for Mike, you know, the narcolepsy, the whole sleepwalking through his own life stuff going on, like he is almost just absent in his own life to a large degree. You know, his brother knows more about his real father, apparently. He tells that horrible story about his mother murdering his dad and stuff, like possibly, maybe. Did he do it or not? Just having to have that thought running through his head, it's just like, you're just seeing the diametric opposites here, you know, Keanu and River, they're just the two sides of the coin. Now, I think in terms of the brother telling the story about the mom, I think that story that he was telling, the way that I read that scene, and maybe I misread it, or maybe, I don't know, maybe I just read it the way that River Phoenix's character read it, but was that like, you know, that whole lie, I don't think that was the truth. I think it was just like the story that had been sort of 
told some version of to him all his life? Because River says, like, I know who my real father is, and it's you. I, I might have missed part, or I don't know what, but I feel like that was just a lie that, whether it's yeah, an age difference thing or whatever. Yeah, what I ultimately just got out of that whole visit was River Phoenix being told by his brother that your mother was institutionalized and you come from her and like you're crazy you know and that's why you're narcoleptic and that's why you're what's wrong with you I mean that's how I read the scene is like his brother is not a great brother by any means you know he doesn't really care about it he tries he's like slaps him around until he falls asleep uh and then he tells him these horrible things and it's like that seed of insanity that wonder you know and I don't think it helps the character at all and it just adds to the tragedy and yeah and the the fact that he's paired with this guy who has everything going for him i mean it's 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 so comical when they get pulled over on the side of the road yes and river phoenix <laughs> runs away yes. and keanu's just like what's up officer and the guy's like hey you need some help and and there's a raid on the sort of hustler hotel and the cops burst in and they're like oh um we're look. Uh, your dad's looking for you. Whenever you have a moment, could you come to his place? And he's like, "Fuck you, officer. <laughs> like, I'll be there when I can." And you know, it's just like amazing the authority he has and stuff. And so, yeah, I think we're just supposed to try and see, you know, these highs and lows, like these just two different sides of this. What I do like about his narcolepsy, the way that it's played on screen, is that. It is, I think, mostly sad and mostly tragic, as you were describing, but there's also that one moment, at least, where he just wakes up and he's on a plane, and he's just like, the plane's yeah. landing, he's just like, oh, like, and that just, it's so funny, because it's, like, he is sort of, like, sleepwalking through his life, but, like, that time, as opposed to other times, you know, he was sort of, I don't know how I'm going to get home, and then all of a sudden he wakes up and he's basically home. And it's like, oh, like, things, <laughs> I guess things sometimes work out. I don't know, there's just something about that scene that I just absolutely loved. It's true, and there's a way in which you can read this movie as it all being kind of a disjointed unreality, like like maybe it's in his head, like maybe parts of it are, are a dream, or he's sort of dreaming his way through this life in a way. And I think I, again, I've, not, I've only seen it once, but is there a way to read this movie as the River Phoenix character is Keanu Reeves' soul? And is there a way that he sort of, you know, has to leave his soul behind in order to go be who he's going to be later on? And yet that's always the part of him that's, that's going to be the most free, but also the most tragic. The, the structure of this movie allows you to, to have those kinds of interpretations, and which the, this is the curse of um, uh, screenwriting classes. And I say this having taught uh, more, than, more than my fair share. But if somebody brings this script into class as it is, first of all, I would say put it in the right font. But again, I'm traditional that way. <laughs> um, but the other thing is one of the conversations that we would have was, should these two characters be two characters or should you, could you combine these two characters into one character? A narcoleptic street hustler you know, who's facing the fact that he might have to go back to his old privileged life. I don't think that would be a better movie. And I sort of hate myself for imagining myself to telling some young, some <laughs> young okay. writer to think about doing it that way. Uh, because I think the power of this movie is the fact that it doesn't do that. Uh, yeah. But anyway, but those, but those sort of, I, I think there's a clue to alternate readings of this movie in the way some of those sleep moments and dream moments happen. I kind of like your quasi-fight club interpretation. That's exactly what I was going to say. I buy it. I don't know. And I also like the narcolepsy just as a storytelling device, you know, just yeah. as something as a character trait. Like, it allows him to fall asleep in Rome and wake up in America, and you can just forget about all that in-between stuff. And, and I don't mean forget about it as in just cut it out, but, like, literally the character 
itself has like skipped over that moment. I, I like that whole concept. Uh, and I definitely agree that I feel like this film is coded on many different levels for many different eyes, you know, for the straight eye, for yes. the gay eye, for the male eye, for the female eye, you know, for the old, for the young, yeah. just for the learned and for the not. Um, one thing I picked up just this just being my second viewing is early on and very late on in the movie River Phoenix is falling asleep in the road and he has a quick vision of salmon swimming upstream and throughout most of the movie he's dressed in salmon colored pink Mm. so Uh I mean that it, it just kept nagging me this time so I mean it had to be something and you know he and you know salmon like that's their whole mission is just to to go go upstream and and spawn right and he will never get there or will he that is just part of the journey for him he's sort of stuck in that motion can we talk about how this is visually and sort of narratively in some parts very david lynchian yes i mean especially that one scene apparently what i read was that song that udo kier sings to them in the hotel room is from his cabaret show so this is something that he did and he used to sing into a microphone. They switched yeah, it yeah. from a microphone to a lamp so as to basically not recreate the scene from Blue Velvet. Sitting on the bullet. Sinking of power. Every hour. But also, the role of Bob, who was played by a guy who I feel like should have been in everything and only is in like 15 things ever. He was uh, a director. Oh. He directed River Phoenix in the, in the Jimmy Reardon movie. That part was originally offered to Dennis Hopper, who is <laughs> who, you know has been in David Lynch stuff. And apparently, Gus Van Sant says that Dennis Hopper said that he wanted to be one of the two leads. And Gus Van Sant says, I think even to this day, like... He's not sure if he was joking or not. Like, he thinks he was joking, but he's not 100% sure. Anyway, he turned that down. But there's all these... And, you know, we have Grace Zabriskie in this movie from a lot of David Lynch stuff. I mean, it just feels like a lot of it is a lot more... I don't want to say lighthearted. It's it's a different type of story than the one that David Lynch would tell. But a lot of it does sort of feel like, you know, a David Lynch movie turned on like a 45 degree angle and let's not pretend though that david lynch movies are devoid of humor it's dark but there's there's quite a bit of comedy in in those movies oh sure yeah you're you're totally right as you begin to piece those things together you can see the influence of another underground movie that went big blue velvet like you begin to feel you can feel those all through these early 90s movies how menacing would the bob role be with dennis hopper in it though right you know I, I could never imagine him playing falstaff which is what this character is is meant to be like there's nothing sort of you know cuddly about about him at all there's no no sort of avuncular quality i would think it would and maybe i'm uh, i again i may maybe just the hopper stuff i'm most used to is when he's playing some kind of psychopath it sure. would have been a completely different cast on those scenes though wouldn't it yeah, it would have been his second time with Dennis Hopper, too, because he played a quasi-maniac in River's Edge, where he was playing the oh, saxophone right. and dancing with a mannequin, much like a David Lynch movie. And guys, how amazing if Crispin Glover was the Keanu <laughs> role in this thing. Yeah, the parallels are definitely there, you know, because I also think this is a strange and dangerous world. The one kid 
the blind kid tells the story of his first time where he's basically sodomized with a wine bottle. And the other guy tells the first time where he has to give this guy a BJ for free, basically, because his buddy stole the money. And you need a twist of humor to kind of digest that stuff, especially if this is your first time stepping into this world. The beauty sort of of the Bob character is that it's hard to really get a read on him and he can be funny, and if you had Dennis Hopper in that role, even if it's the same character to the letter, it would have been read completely different, sort of like when we watched World Trade Center for Cage Club, and Michael Shannon shows up as that good yes. Samaritan, we're just like, what is yeah. he up to? Like, there's yes. no way that he's just a good guy. Yes. It's just that there's certain actors bring this, I don't know, vibe or aura or just menace to the screen and even though Dennis Hopper, you know, true romance, like, you know, my favorite thing that Tarantino's ever written, and he's just a sweet guy, you know, just Christian Slater's dad in that movie, right? And there's nothing menacing there. He just brings this, I don't, it just, it's creepy <laughs> to think about. Okay, so going back to something that you talked about a while ago when we were talking about Keanu playing a 20-year-old, 21-year-old, and you said you weren't even sure if this movie was dealing with numbers, like, you know, in terms of ages or whatever. What's a little strange is that the movie draws so much attention to where the action is taking place that there's these very vibrant title cards like Portland, Seattle, Rome, Idaho, and yet, aside from when they're in Italy, it almost doesn't really matter where they are. Maybe that's just my general lack of familiarity with the the Northwest. Even though I've been up there, I'm not someone like our esteemed guest who grew up there and lives there now. Thank you. <laughs> Everything has a different feel to it, but I, I just don't get the sense that... Like he, Gus Van Sant draws so much attention to where the action's taking place, and yet ultimately, I don't know that it really matters. Yeah, the Portland and Seattle settings feel, again, on one viewing, seem rather interchangeable. I think that the Idaho feels more desolate. It feels less populated. You know, it's a much more rural experience. And and so that feels like a very different landscape. And then I think the Rome one is kind of played for comedy, right? This movie that is a... Again, as indie movie in the early 90s that you were used to being in, in sort of one location or, you know, at least in one city. And suddenly we're like, oh, and we're going to go to Rome. For me, I got kind of a, a chuckle out of that. But you're right. In a movie that wants to play a lot of it in sort of a dreamlike way, to then be so specific about the locations is kind of an odd thing. Yeah, I was trying to figure it out a bit, too. And I just figured that Idaho was the stretch of road and Portland was the hotel that they all crashed at. And maybe the other place was the Chinese restaurant that served hamburgers, which I don't know. (laughs) And it just showed that they have this radius that they operate within and they haven't been outside of these places and that these are their hotspots that they frequent and their safe zones, so to speak. And when they go to Rome, what I thought was kind of especially funny is we see the street hustler life of Rome, Yes, you know, and it's like exactly the same, basically, like except for they're standing in front of the Colosseum, but it's like it's played to be such not a big deal whatsoever. And then he just ends up going with another fetish creepo into a hotel room just like as if it was he was doing the little Dutch boy again like in the beginning of the movie or something like it's just wherever he goes there they are like you just can't escape that yes I agree (laughs) what I did also love about Rome is that moment in the countryside made me feel so bad for River Phoenix because Keanu basically falls in love with like this farm maiden yep. who like, barely <laughs> speaks English and he has to listen to them having sex through the walls and not only that, like she basically knew 
his, his mother mom. better than he did. Yeah. An American woman? Yeah. Do you know her? Yeah. Um, but it's not, it's not true that she lives here. Is it true? No, she, she left a long time ago. Back to America. Was she your friend? Yeah. She lived here and um, because I wanted to learn English, she, she, she told, she told it to me. Oh, this is my friend. This is Mike. Mike. Mike? Michael. Carmina. Hey. She knows your mom. Really? Where? No, she's... I'll be right back. Oh, Mike. Mom! It's just really sad he gets like all cheated out of that whole experience too and Keanu comes through with it with this wife that he even brings back to America. I know. Like that's what I was getting at before. It's like everything just comes so naturally to him and like not only is it that she knows his mom better than he does and you know he just missed her by a matter of maybe months or maybe even less who knows but then like to hear the guy that you're in yes. love with Yes. It's so devastating on so many levels. And then, like, just to wake up one day and Keanu's like, hey, we're just going to take off. So, like, here's a little spending cash and bye. And it's just like, oh, I guess, you know, it's not like Keanu owes anything to Mike because he just sort of tagged along with him on this trip to another country. But just, like, to be left there, like, it just, it feels like everything about it is just, like, the, the worst case scenario for, like, everything to do with that character and the situation, it all sort of unfolds in a way that, you know, if you gave him, like, ten different ways to describe, like, what might happen when they go over there, I don't think this is any of them, and this is somehow more devastating than everything. I'm gonna take a little time off. You know? Maybe I'll run into you down the road. Some cash to share from the bike. I fell in love, Mike. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry we didn't find you mom. Yeah, it's true. Can, can we talk for a second about these frozen image sex scenes that they do? Oh, yeah. These are amazing. Yeah. These are so. I don't know why that didn't get talked about in film school, but the but <laughs> but these other scenes did because they're not still framed. They're actors holding still in in various, yeah. and they'll do you know depending on the scene, you know, eight to twelve or fifteen positions, and it's just it's funny. It's somehow it's not that it's not erotic, but it's sort of removes some eroticism i think the moving image is such is such a powerful thing but it's also on just a very basic way a new way to shoot a sex scene you know how cheesy is every sex scene ever right and this this is like such a new way to do it 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 felt so refreshing even you know again however many years later we are talking here you really don't lose anything doing it this no, way, right? No. And like, I didn't know how to process it until I read about it afterwards and why he decided to include it. But watching, I'm just like, I guess like this is something that's happening. It happens once, and you're like, okay, that's weird, because it almost feels like because the, the the first time they do it is with Udo Kier, and it's just sort of like you know, 1991, like okay, like you know, it's gonna be a queer movie, but like we don't really know if we want to show like hardcore gay sex, like even you know, like we can sort of tastefully do like these living images. But then they do it later with Keanu and Carmela, 
And it's just like, oh, this is just how they sip Miss McGill's tea in this universe. It's just, you know, they're all like very carefully, everything is covered up. It's like weird artful skinamax and they're not images like they're all like it's all video right they're just sort of like yeah they're just holding still yeah yeah and you get like three seconds of it or two seconds of it yeah they're doing their statue thing i don't know like subconsciously for me like not that it took me out of it but it just made me less aware of the sex of it in a way where i was just like oh that's just very interesting in a new way to shoot something he doesn't do it with everything but just something about it kind of made me chuckle instead of maybe if he had done like you said like a hardcore scene there which he could have because we do get the opening shot of the blowjob and everything i mean you know that is shot without any forgiveness right like he's just shooting it like it is basically so it's not like he wouldn't do it it's just something about the moment that needed an, an extra level so what I read about the sex scenes is that we've mentioned it a lot that there's a lot of this movie is inspired by or riffed on or sort of an adaptation of a few different Shakespeare plays. And there was a lot of back and forth in a sense of how much of that language they should keep in the film. And the studio, New Line Cinema, they hated it and they didn't want any of it in there. But then the foreign distributors loved it so much that like under their pressure, they're like, all right, we can leave it in there. But there is still, I guess, this sense that like in what's otherwise a really sort of modern, gritty, you know, like you were saying, I think earlier, the phrase you used, Tobin, was something like, you know, a snapshot of, you know, like a, a time capsule of like this era, right? The language still seemed so out of place that apparently they wanted these surreal weirdo sex scenes to make everything else sort of feel normal. If this is how we're portraying this, then sort of like everything else is kind of fair game too. That's interesting. And and there's a, you know, formally the movie is very interesting in the way it shifts. You know, when Bob shows up, it shifts much more into the Shakespearean cadences and even quoting Shakespeare. There's a sense where the movie will, things will happen in the movie that will be very naturalistic, that will feel very like you're just there on the street, this very hardcore realism. And then it will shift to these very, very formal things, you know, where the style is up front. It sort of forces you to contend with the fact that you're watching a movie. And that's one of the things I loved about this this sex scene was that the way I read it was them saying, okay, this is where the sex scene comes. I know you've been, this is a movie about sex in, in a lot of ways. And I know you were waiting for this scene, but I just want you to be aware that you are a person watching a movie with a sex scene in it. Because there's no way to watch those scenes without sort of taking you out of the moment. And you have to then do the work of reinvesting in the moment itself to feel anything in terms of the character, how the characters are relating to one another in those scenes. It's a, it's a kind of an ingenious thing, I think. Yeah, it's economic, stylistic choice. For me, it just added more, like, the scene in the bookstore when the magazine covers come to life. It just gives it a little bit more of this pop feel, too, as well, where, like you said, like, you know you're watching a movie. And that definitely helps to digest the difficulty of some of the themes that are going on here. Can I mention my favorite Keanu acting moment in this? Which is just a tiny thing he does that has to be something that he just added. When they're at the hotel and they see the the German, they go over to see him at the the hotel and he just, as he walks up to him, just runs a, a finger down the guy's spine. Did you catch that gesture? He just like zips it down his spine I and then not. stands next to him. Oh my gosh, it's it's such a <laughs> he's so present in that moment in that character. That reads to me as exactly how that character would sort of playfully, publicly greet this guy, right? Like it's intimate, it's a come on, it's a tease, but it's also just a laugh and it, you know, it just it, it very playful like it, it just feels to me that moment for whatever reason, whatever tiny reason, that moment summed up that character 
in so many ways. Yeah, and, and the rest of that scene kind of sums up the River Phoenix character to me because of just how uncomfortable yes, he is. Yes, yes. Udo Kurt tries to give him a ride earlier in the movie, and he's like, I'm a friend of your friend. And he's like, get away, creepo. And here is Keanu, you know, the guy he's in love with, is just straight up flirting with them, super comfortable, gets them all up to his room. And River Phoenix is like sitting there in his bathrobe like, oh man, I know what we got to do to get to Rome. <laughs> yeah. Like, we got to do this guy to get the money. And like, Keanu, he's like more into it. And River Phoenix is just like, I can't believe this crap. What's great as sort of a compliment to that is that after they have this moment, after they have this night, and Keanu's okay with whatever because he knows he lives a hashtag blessed life, and then they go to the airport to buy the plane ticket, and they just look at each other, and they just start cracking up. It's sort of like they have this shared experience now about this really awkward... Because that guy's a real weirdo. Like, no matter... However you slice it. I just love the shot of them, like, buying the plane tickets, and then they just look at each other and realize what they did to do what they're doing now. There's nothing to do but laugh. I love that moment. Yeah, it's true. It's also a clue as to maybe why we get the two sex scenes shot that way that we do, in that here's River Phoenix's most physically intimate moment with Keanu Reeves, right? And we know he carries this this torch for him, right? He's in love with this guy. And then the other one that we get is Keanu Reeves and Carmela. They're having this like, like they're falling in love in that moment, right? So there's a way in which those scenes get the statue treatment. And then the other ones where it's just a job don't. Maybe that's a clue as to you know what the strategy was there. Yeah, I like that. Oh, one thing I read that doesn't have anything to do with anything you were saying, but I really like, is that when they were shooting the abandoned building, where we talked about earlier, where like the police sort of come and raid it to find Keanu, they had to shoot it like in a bunch of different places. I don't know if it was like the way the building was laid out or whatever, but the way that the building exists in the movie is not how it was in real life. And they shot that over like a week or two, or like it was just sort of like this long drawn out process but anyway for some reason it says to challenge himself but I don't know it just seems crazy every time River Phoenix would walk into a door and knew that it would cut to him walking through on the other side he would like cough or sneeze or do something but intentionally like he wanted to have to match it it's just like this crazy like I don't know like that's just weird I don't know I'm sure that there's something you could extrapolate about his character, but it just seems like he wanted to raise the difficulty of, you know, okay, I I coughed in this weird way, or I moved my body in this way, and I know that in eight days we're going to be shooting the other side, like the reverse of this, and I have to do the same exact thing. Like, it's just, it's just like a weird thing to do. It's funny that in the same conversation with Todd Haynes, Gus Van Sant talks about how basically River Phoenix was he doesn't come out and say this but he sort of but he sort of alludes to him being undirectable not in a bad way but in the sense that every time they would have a conversation about the character and you know half the time Gus Van Sant would suggest something and River Phoenix would say no no he wouldn't do that you know or you know well no he'd do it this way like he just inhabited that character and I think there's a playfulness in the movie that serves it really well that that maybe has something to do with the way he was deciding to play that character, setting up these challenges for himself. And as opposed to that, Keanu apparently was like way into research. Gus Van Sant gave them both his book to read, a memoir of a street hustler when he was young. And he says he doubts that River Phoenix opened it. Like he doesn't think he probably ever touched it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I read something about, you know, River Phoenix, I think, read the first paragraph and was just like, oh, I know. Like I just, I'm I'm able to like draw on this, but Keanu read it a couple times. And then then read the other books that this guy had written, like went, did a deep dive into this, which again gets to the sort of commitment and maybe why, given some of the roles that he had had some of the films that he'd done you know he gets this opportunity and he's going to take it for all it's worth 
the one thing that I read that like Keanu brought to this was that like he had a lot of friends in Canada who were sort of like his character in that they were rich and they just sort of decided to like live on the streets just because it was like a counterculture thing to do or whatever. And so he brought that to it. But like River Phoenix sort of had lived this right. kind of life or you know whatever, and just it was just completely different. But like I guess the characters are so different, but they 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 work just so well together. It's funny because I think way back in the short episode for One Step Away, Joey, we mentioned that when Keanu was like a runaway in that, that maybe hopefully he won't go around selling his body or anything like that. And we're all these movies later (laughs) and he's dealing with that subject matter and he's drawing from accounts maybe from reasons why they made stuff like One Step Away, you know, because of street hustlers and kids running away and getting wrapped into that lifestyle. The thing about this with me between these two actors is River Phoenix, I definitely get more of him becoming the character in a way where I kind of still see Keanu through the character at times. And that's not to say I don't think he's really good here because I think this is one of his best performances. But in a weird way, I can still tell it's him. Whereas with River, it's just the character for me. Which I think is partly by design, or at least it, it worked well for the movie because, of course... River Phoenix's character is just that character, and Keanu Reeves' character is is acting. The character is acting through most of this movie, and it's up to us, I think, to decide whether he's acting more when he's, you know, with River and as a street kid, or whether he's acting more when he's all buttoned up and back to the high life. But either way, he's he's putting on a performance, and I think that it's a it's kind of a brave thing for an actor to do, especially when you're playing opposite somebody who is just going to inhabit the role. When your character has to sort of be more presentational with it because you run the risk of as you say of you're not going to lose yourself to the character because the character itself is a is a character for the character do you know what i mean what i'm excited to see in sort of a a broader scope is that a few movies from now we're going to do even cowgirls get the blues which is also directed by gus van sant and also is going to return grace zabriskie and udo kier and river phoenix is thanked or no it's dedicated to him it's dedicated to river and I sort of get the sense that maybe he would have been in it, but, like, it's going to be this sort of reunion, so I, I wonder how Keanu was going to treat that role. Like, I don't know anything about that movie other than it's more expensive than I would have liked it to have been on DVD, and Uma Thurman's, like, in some kind of weirdo cow pants sitting backwards on a chair, like, on the DVD cover. So I don't know anything about that movie, but I'm interested to see how Keanu does sort of in round two with Gus Van Sant and see if he does a similar, like, role or if he's going to do something a little bit different. Yeah, I also I don't know anything about that. But I've seen more Gus Van Sant than I know. Like, I, I haven't seen Drugstore Cowboy. Uh, I saw To Die For, which has uh, River Phoenix's brother is in that one. So we have Joaquin in that, which I thought was interesting. I've seen Goodwill Hunting, Milk, and the Psycho remake. So I've, I'm more familiar with Van Sant than I realized. And, and I will say this, like, each of those movies feel very different than one another. You know, he's much more of this eclectic director than I previously given credit for because I just have seen Goodwill Hunting the most. I just got it somewhere in my mind that he is one of those dramatic directors. There's nothing wrong with Goodwill Hunting, but I mean there's nothing necessarily surreal about it, you know, like in this way. I you couldn't put these two movies next to each other and necessarily say, oh yeah, I, I can obviously tell Gus Van Sant directed both of those. That's something I like about his style. It's crazy to see a guy like Gus Van Sant do a movie like this and then a movie like Goodwill Hunting or like a movie like Elephant, which is all about the build up to a school shooting. Like, and I was looking at his films, he's done like 16 or 18, and I've seen, you know, at least half, if not more, and they all, like, they're all art house kind of in a way, but like, you know, movies like Milk or Goodwill Hunting have become bigger over the years, and then there's just like these smaller ones. 
that new one coming out this summer, uh, Sea of Trees with Matthew McConaughey. So he's a really interesting guy, I think. Like, I don't think he's, I think he's sort of been able to steer clear of the Hollywood machine pretty effectively. Yeah, he has a remarkable career. And I think, again, this is the kind of career you could only have starting in either 1971 or in 1991. Uh, or not starting, because he started before that. But but in terms of having a movie that where Drugstore Cowboy, I guess, was late 80s, right? It was 89 or something like that. I may have seen all his features. They sort of fall into, for me, into two camps. They're the more deliberately experimental uh, yeah, it's still narrative, but but experimental ones, and then the ones that are more sort of straight drama, where you have your Goodwill Hunting or your Finding Forrester or your Milk. Then, you, as you say, you have something like Elephant, which is a remarkable movie. Talk about a formally daring movie, because it's all it's made up of. I think it's eight long takes. It's a school shooting movie and eight long takes, and from different points of view. It's just formally a fascinating movie, but it's very strange. And Jerry's a, a crazy movie. Casey Affleck and uh, Matt Damon sort of wandering off into the into the desert, just talking, and the, I think eventually dying. And, and the Psych, Psycho remake, the same thing, right? As avant-garde as narrative cinema can get, that's where you find Gus Van Sant and in those moments. Then there are like these two or three, like My Own Private Idaho and To Die For, that sort of sit in this middle, right? They're like half, have these experimental sort of, odd this oddness to them but then also hang together as comedies or dramas or or whatever they are in a much more sort of mainstream kind of way he's a fascinating filmmaker the fact that he wanted to remake psycho shot like that to break down like the psyche of a guy who wants to do that it's just i i don't know i mean it's just and then you look at him like i looked at like what i picture in my mind what a guy like gus van sant looks like and you look at his imdb picture he's just like this jolly guy it doesn't line up i don't think you sort of expect him to be like this sort of like squirrely like kind of maybe on the verge of like a not like a nervous breakdown but just like you know something bad is going to happen and then he just seems to be like really enjoying life like I don't, I don't know what goes on in his brain but like it's uh it, it doesn't it doesn't appear to line up to what I think it should well he cameos in this he shows up as the bellhop in this movie He's over the shoulder in the hotel of one of the hotels somewhere along the way uh, in the bellhop costume with his little ponytail as he as he, he doesn't oh, say yeah, anything yeah, but okay. he's totally there now, I also always just imagine him to be much more of a take-myself-too-serious kind of guy. The one moment in his career, I think, that really showed me who he was is that he's got a cameo in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back at the very end when they're running through the film studio and they come upon the set of Goodwill Hunting 2. Basically, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are there going, Gus, what's my motivation? And Gus Van Sant is basically counting a giant pile of money going, uh, do whatever the hell you want. To me, then I was like, all right, this guy, he, he doesn't take himself ultra seriously he works a little outside the studio but he could also manipulate it in a way so that he's figured out a way to maneuver through the studio system and manipulate it to get his movies made the way he wants oh the, the one thing i wanted to mention that you just reminded me of is that apparently when when this movie was being made new line cinema picked it up and he had this vision that this sort of gritty art house movie was gonna be played in quote shopping malls across the country and then Lo and behold, to release this movie, New Line Cinema came up with like their art house line. It's Fine Line, isn't uh, it? Fine Line? New Line created Fine Line Features, yes. It's a special art house label. And so instead of showing in like, you know, Cineplexes everywhere, it just got relegated to these art houses, which is exactly what he wanted to avoid. So I think that's sort of it couldn't have made him happy because he had this dream that, you know, he was gonna sort of become a mainstream director on his own terms, even though for this just like two and a half million dollar movie but then it just got stashed away in the, the exact kind of theaters that all of his other films probably played
I feel like he didn't really come to the public forefront until Goodwill Hunting took off, and then every you know Matt and Ben were like, it was Gus, it was Gus, you know Gus Van Sant. At least for me, that's sort of when I first became aware of his name being thrown around. I think that's about all I have to say about this movie. Is there anything else that you guys wanted to cover, Tobe? Anything else in your notes? Any other confessions that you want to lay on the world about about this lie that you've been living for 15 years? No, I, it feels good to get that off my chest. I, 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 I appreciate the uh, confession that we've had here. I don't think... I'm trying to think if there's a movie that I've said that I've seen. Probably. I can't think of anything right now. But, I mean, you, you've bared your soul. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, my last note on the movie was just that... I think the movie wants me to judge Keanu's character more harshly at the end than I do. But for whatever reason, I totally understand what Keanu is doing at the end of this movie. It's not that I don't feel sympathy for the River Phoenix character or that I don't care about him, but it feels to me a little bit like the. I think by how severe they have Keanu in terms of the costuming and the and just the shots and how. And again, they're at a funeral at the very end, so I realize they're all wearing black. But there's a real dour quality. And- it feels to me as though the movie wants us to judge him pretty harshly. And I, I, get, I get the sense that Joey might, but I don't. I don't judge him as harshly as, as I feel like the movie does at the end of it here. Although what I do like about the very end of the movie, you know, you have to wonder, like, is he at the right funeral? Like, does he sort of, like, I guess that's the point of the scene, right? Like, is he supposed to be in this rigid, formal, three-piece suit, somber thing, or, you know, basically a drum circle where people are just chanting Bob's name over and over again? Right, and I think the movie wants us to think that he's at the wrong funeral, and I don't know that he is. I think the tragedy is the fact that he doesn't belong in either funeral, and he has to choose, and that he chose this one, I don't don't begrudge him that choice. Or going back to what you said earlier in the movie, or earlier in the podcast, should he be at a funeral where they're just chanting his name was Robert Paulson? I mean, you know, if there's any any of these options, you know, maybe he belongs in Fight Club, who knows? Or the funeral he's actually at is... You know the funeral for his soul for the River Phoenix character. Like that. That's that's a way Ooh. to to read it. I think. I like that, Mike. Anything else? Um, now that we're here at the end, I almost wonder if this movie would have worked better as two entirely separate films. If we had just had the Keanu character doing the uh, sort of modern representation of Shakespeare on the street doing that whole storyline and stretch that out to an hour and a half, two hours and go through all of Henry the Fourth, parts one and two. Would that have been better? I would have watched that. I would have liked that maybe a little more. And I also think I might have liked to have just seen River Phoenix search for his mother go more across America, more across Europe, and make his way back around again. I think that would have worked more. I mean, I do enjoy this movie. I like it a lot, and I like all the stuff we've been talking about and everything, but there's just something about it that does still feel like it's two things crammed together in a way that don't exactly line up perfectly, but I, you know, that's not to say that I don't really like this movie or anything. I'm just kind of nitpicking here at the end, trying to trying to find a little something extra to talk No, about. I agree. You, you, you said it better than I could. And again, I apologize to all my friends for whom this is their touchstone movie, but I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Oh, I think if you like this movie, a good modern version of this in a way of like the modern Street Hustler, I was thinking of Tangerine. I don't know if oh, you guys yeah. have Oh, seen Tangerine's that awesome. Yeah. Tangerine's yeah. amazing. Yeah, so I think in a weird kind of way, that movie is the modern reflection of what this was doing at the time in a lot of ways. Like you could kind of see how far that genre of cinema has come by watching like maybe a double feature. Good call. I like that movie a lot more than I like this movie. I don't dislike this movie, but I like that movie a lot more. Well, Gus Van Sant said there was a particular Orson Welles film that influenced some of the structure of this movie. 
The Chimes of Midnight. Yeah, that's a fascinating movie where he takes he takes the Falstaff character, the Bob character, in all three plays that he appears in Shakespeare, Henry the Fourth, one, two, and and Henry the Fifth, and just puts his scenes together to make his story out of those. It's 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 amazing. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, but this one I was just trying to see if this is like easily accessible and it's not on Netflix, Hulu, or Amazon. So if you want to sort of have a movie where you know it's it's artsy and you want to think about things and <laughs> you want to see a you want to see a really good role or like two really good actors, check it out. Plus the the Criterion itself is actually cool. Like the case is cool. So and, if you want to buy it, and and again as a, a plug for the time and the place to understand in terms of film history in this in the early days the first two or three years of the of the american independent cinema boom of the 90s this really is a and i can see it now and i can say this safely having seen the movie it really is a touchstone movie for that era and and for things that came after it and i think that it's it really is worth seeing even if it's not something you're going to revisit a lot or it's not going to make your list of top 100 favorite movies or your your hashtag seven fave films it's still one that for sure would if you have any interest in in that era or american cinema you know of of the last 25 years it's it is one to see for sure well it sounds like you need to now go find the bill and ted time machine the phone booth and go back in time to your to 2001 <laughs> yes. and like actually have a different kind of conversation i should I, I i would very rarely shut up about movies when people were talking about them but this one i kept my mouth pretty pretty closed and just sort of nodded and mm-hmm, oh yeah yeah that scene yeah that's great yeah <laughs> Well, thank you very much for joining us and for bearing your soul and sort of absolving your conscience after 15 years of the darkest lie. <laughs> I appreciate the chance to uh, set my conscience free here. Thank you. And you'll be back in a couple movies for another, a much more direct Shakespeare adaptation of Much Ado About Nothing. So that's exciting, and you will be back soon. Can't wait. Thanks, guys. So for all things Keanu Club, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub, see the episodes that we've done, see what's coming next, find the other shows on the network, lots of fun free things to do at those two places. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Tobin Addington, and we'll see you next time on Keanu Club. Mm-hmm.